podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Merry Christmas, everyone, and welcome to a Yuletide edition of Macklin's Take. We did think that episode number 101 with Robert Diaz was going to be the last one of the year, but our top producer, Darren Reese, as he did last year, has decided to put together a festive selection box. I think that's, I think that's what we called it last year, so we'll, we'll call it again the same thing this year. If you are of a certain age, I don't know if they do them anymore, if you're of a certain age, then you'll remember what a selection box was exactly. I used to get them, and it was basically a combination of, of chocolate bars in a box which doesn't sound wildly exciting uh, I'll give you that but I guarantee you at the time when you were like seven eight years old that was that was pretty fucking mega uh, so that's the reason for the name not that I probably really needed to explain it I don't actually know what's in it because he's going to pick the bits that he feels are best and we trust him so it should be a good listen and before we get into that I did say some thank yous before we got cracking on the previous episode but I just want to say thanks again to everybody for listening because we've loved doing it this year especially this year it's it's been a year like no other nobody needs to nobody needs me to explain why and how we're all we're all very much aware of it but Macklin's take has been great for us this year because certainly for a stretch there where there was you know, there was just no resemblance to your normal life. I'm thinking mainly about April, May, June, July, but for a lot of people it's continued beyond that. But whilst that was the case, doing this every week and doing a couple a week, it, it gave us something to concentrate on. It, it made us feel like things weren't that strange because we were still talking about boxing every week and, and getting people on we knew and having a chat. And, and that, you know, that definitely that definitely helped and if in some small way this is this has made things a bit easier for people this year having this to listen to then then that's great that that's really all we wanted from this when we started because you know it's we nobody asked us to do this you know we didn't we didn't get a call from the government saying what the country really needs lads is uh, is for you Andy and you Matt to, to to do a boxing podcast if you don't then we're all fucking doomed you know that wasn't that wasn't how this started. We did it for selfish reasons. We did it because we wanted to do it. And it's just nice that people want to listen to it because if they didn't really, what would be what would be the point of it? Um, we enjoy the feedback. We enjoy interacting with everybody on Instagram and Twitter. Everybody's got a great kind of positive vibe about them. Uh, we get a bit of stick sometimes and that's fine. We get plenty of suggestions and that's totally fine too. Um, because this is yeah, this is just something that that we want people to to enjoy, and we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep doing it next year, and and see what you know, see what happens with it. Anyway, that's enough waffle for me. Um, here is the 2020 festive selection box. It's interesting you touch on there, basically, on what a kind of adrenaline fueled train. Uh, boxing is generally but particularly your job is I had a quick chat with Frank Smith on Saturday and, and, and he said that one of the strange things about lockdown was that you go from this this roller coaster where you're taking this traveling circus as he described it from place to place to place and that previous year you were literally doing that every week with with Matchroom USA and Matchroom Italy as well and then all of a sudden that stops and 
those kind of like adrenaline rushes, those spikes and then crashes, which you've just kind of described post New York. I mean, how do you how do you ride those out without completely losing your mind? I mean, you kind of you, you touched on it a bit there. It's quite, you know, I can't say like, I mean, obviously it's a very lonely sport for a fighter, but it's quite lonely at times for a promoter as well, because you're riding the ups and downs of the shows and things can go wrong at any time. You know, you look back on, I mean, probably why I felt like that after the Rees defeat as well, because five weeks before Jarrell Miller had failed three drugs tests. And then I felt like the world was about to end trying to deal with that situation and then bringing an opponent and negotiating with him. And when, when shows go well, like it's the greatest feeling in the world, you know, like fight camp finished to see responses from people. And I, you know, we joked, we're talking off, off record about Twitter and stuff like that. And I was saying, I don't even read them anymore. But of course, when you're getting praised on those platforms, it's a lovely feeling. I mean, who wouldn't, who don't (laughs) want to be told they're great. You know, doesn't matter whether you've got an ego or not. And I have, so I want people to tell me I'm fucking great if possible. So when they don't tell me I'm great, it's all very well me saying, yeah, I don't give a fuck. But of course, you know, this, that their response is a reflection really of the success of, of my show or what I've done. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's, I want every show, I want every show to be great. And when it's not great, I do, I do get down because I'm proud of my work, but also I want to, I want to deliver. I want, like, I want that praise to be quite honest. So, but after, after a show, good or bad, but a lot easier if it's good, He's a weird, I'm quite strange. Like, I think my dad would basically do a show and then he'd be in the bar till four or five in the morning, you know, go out, whatever, you know. And I, I'm quite different. I go back to the room. That's, that's kind of like the loneliest time after a show because I'll go back to the room. Like, during the night, it's all this crescendo and, you know, and you're buzzing. And, and then after that, it's like the most, like, once you've done the media and all that's done, for me personally anyway, it's, that's the most deflating time because I just, you know, and some of the younger generation in the office would say, Ed, we're going out. Do you want to go? We've got this table at this club. And you know, I'm like, I'm going to bed. I won't go to bed. I'll go upstairs and I'll generally watch most of the show back or I'll read all the comments or I'll be posting or I'll be watching the videos and, you know, stuff like that. And, but then that goes on till about five in the morning. And then if we're in Manchester or in Liverpool or wherever we are, then I'll wake up at eight and then I'll drive home and then I'll see my kids. And then by then I've been away for four or five days and my missus will say, over to you. Do you know what I mean? And then it's like, oh my God. And then it's dealing with that all day. And then, so I've got to a period in my life pre-lockdown where when I look back now, it's quite, quite, dang, quite a dangerous period in terms of not... I don't I don't believe that I struggle with my mental health. I think I'm quite solid, although I do appreciate that can change at any time. But I think physically, it weren't really good for me what I was doing. You know, people would say to me, hey, what, how do you do it? What do you do? But that sort of gave me a kick in a sick way. You know, when people say to me, I don't know how you do what you do. You're a machine. You're going week to week, flight to flight. And, I'm, and it's actually making me go, yeah. I can do that. That's because I'm not a genius, but I don't think you can outwork me. Right. That's my biggest attribute. So it doesn't matter whether you're a fighter. If you outwork your opponent in preparation, in performance, you may not be as skilled, 
but generally you're going to be you're going to be winning. And with me, although I do, you know, I, I do believe I'm I'm good at what I do. It's the work ethic and the mindset that means that the others can't keep up because I know whether it's Bob, whether it's Heyman, whether it's Frank, they're not they're not doing what I'm doing. It's impossible for them to be doing what I'm doing. So therefore, that's got to give me an edge. But I got a bit obsessed with that edge and that relentless spirit and just going event to event that actually I look back now, I think lockdown might have been a blessing for me because who knows? I mean, I could have just, boom, a big heart attack and that's me done. You know what I mean? And that's the kind of thing that, you know, I get checks. I, you know, I've got a history of uh, heart problems in my family and I'm always, you know, I'm just trying to try stay fit and I'm trying to always get in checks and stuff like that. But when you're flight to flight, stress to stress, event problem to problem, that's the kind of thing that's going to catch up with you. So the lockdown just gave me an opportunity to just reflect on that and say, you know what, you need, like, I don't sleep, really. You know, you need to start getting to sleep. You need to start being on a time zone, going to sleep at a time, you know, working out four or five times a week. And I really enjoyed it. You know, the homeschooling and stuff like that drive me absolutely potty. But I will look back on that period as one of the fondest of my lives. And I do think it will change things moving forward. You know, I don't know if I want to go back to 55 shows a year or whatever and go into every single one of them and just because at some point you have to let it go. And, you know, Frank Smith stepped up, other people have stepped up. But unfortunately with me, I am the circus act that you roll out. Do you know what I mean? So Frank can do a press conference or a weigh-in, but they want me, you know, people want to see me there. The fighters want to see me there. You know, when I do a press conference, they want me up there doing something stupid or creating a meme or whatever it is, you know? So people want my time and I just have to manage that a little bit better once we go back to normality. Hey, 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 kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast. Coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Matt, we talked to Kala about about a, this exact subject, didn't we? The kind of promotional treadmill, Kala Sowland, and and he said really that you, you you see people come and go in boxing, didn't they? You see people arrive with all the money in the world as you know as rich as Croesus, and then a few months later their pockets have been emptied and and off they go. Uh, and that really what it comes down to is that what binds him and and, and Eddie uh, and Bob Arum and Don King. Uh, and any other promoter who was endured for a length of time is the fact that they're all they're all survivors, and that that's the key to it. You have to you have to find a way to survive because it's an incredibly cutthroat business. Yeah, I mean, what, what Eddie was talking about there, it, it, he was basically talking about the same emotional roller coaster that fighter goes through. It's very similar, even though it's, it, you're just applying it to the business as opposed to the actual fighting. You, you know, the ups and downs, the highs and lows. I remember after a fight. You know, on the, on the Saturday, you know, you've had the fight and everyone's buzzing and that. 
on the Monday and the Tuesday, I feel depressed. Cause, mm. and, and what I've realised is, because I'm on such a high, but whatever goes up has to come down. <laughs> so then you get used to sort of preparing yourself for the low that's going to come, and it has to come. So the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, like you say, the last week, you've been building for this one night, then you hit that night and hopefully it goes well and you win and everything's on this mad high. Then you're still buzzing the next day because everyone's still talking about it, it's still in the news and that. But then kind of like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, people are back to work and life goes on and all of a sudden you're sitting there, you have, you're not building up to a fight, you haven't got, you don't know what's happening next. I think you're just sitting there a little bit bored and, and I suppose I'm, you're on a come down, aren't you? <laughs> the biggest drug in the world is boxing. Yeah, that's why people struggle when they leave the sport. I think that's why people struggle when they leave anything that's exciting, you know, and that's when you talk about mental health problems, you talk about drugs, you talk about drink. I mean, you look at some great fighters that when they've left the sport, they, they spiral in, you know, they, they, they've lost those highs that you just talked about there, you know, that, that buzz, they live for that and they realize it's not going to be there anymore. And they look for something else to give them that high. To fill the void whether it's drugs, whether, you know, whatever it is, crime could be anything. But that's why I, I believe I'm such a strong, but nothing makes me feel better than when a fighter hangs up their gloves, content, right? Mm. Because the worst thing in life is living with regret, right? And thinking that, oh, you know, as a fighter going, I could have done this, I could have done more, I just wasted it, I didn't do that. And when I look at people like Barker and Bellew, they're probably like my two best examples that I'm that I'm most proud of. Where I say, like Barker's Barker wouldn't have changed anything, anything, you know. Bellew still wants to fight today, really, but the way he wrapped it up and the money he earned and the legacy that he created out of nowhere, really, he can sit in his house or houses and say, "Oh look, there's me belt over there, WBC world title. That's my first pay per view fight over there." Do you know what I mean? And that's, and then you can live a happy life because you can only live a happy life when you're comfortable in yourself. And, and when you've achieved what, you know, more than you ever th- dreamed of achieving, you can live that kind of lifestyle. But otherwise you live in regret and that's when you'll turn, you'll become unhappy, you'll search for things in life to try and solve, you know, the, the feelings you have inside. And generally that will lead to a downward slope. So it's great to see fighters leave knowing they've given everything. And I think that you don't always leave a job or, or a career or, or a boxing career with the feeling that you couldn't have achieved more. But you can always leave anything saying that you couldn't have done anymore. And that's the difference. Because if you have that feeling, that should be enough for you. You know, just because you never won a world title, just because it's not not you, Matt, by the way, because you did deserve to win a world title. But just because a fighter never won a world title or a British title or a Commonwealth, they they shouldn't sit there with regret. As long as they did everything they could, as long as they put everything into it, then you should be content in life, you know, because you couldn't have done any more. It's it's a bit like Dillian White on Saturday night. He couldn't have done any more in that camp, in the preparation. He worked so hard, honestly, you know, like... For five months, I think, in that camp, got himself in the bed. And that's why all week on fight week, he was so happy because he was like, um, like I can stand in that corner before the first bell or like a sprinter can stand on the start line. Now, I was talking to Dina Asher-Smith, sorry for the, the tangent, but and I, I said about sprinting 
in a hundred meter race. Right? We all talk about how great our sport is, and it is. But you imagine that you've trained for four years for an Olympics, right? And you've got through your heats, and then all of a sudden you're on that start line, and you have basically got well less than ten seconds to make it count, right? We always say a fighter's got thirty-six minutes, right? Can you imagine? being on that side. And when we're talking about fractions in races like that, if you don't nail every fraction, every detail from, I don't know, I've got a clue what I'm talking about, you know, set the reaction to the gun, you know, those first five yards, you know, the arms going up, the knees raising, the drop, like all those moments, 10 seconds you've got to make that count. All it is, is, and it's just, Point two, point zero two of a second, poor reaction to the gun, and your four years of work, your entire dream is over. Like that's pressure. You know what I mean? And listen, boxing's the same, but okay, Eddie should be promoting the hundred meters final. He just sold me a ticket then. <laughs> <laughs> I should be doing athletics as well, to be fair. I remember Barry Jones saying to me a few, well, recently, a few weeks ago, that he he only went full time when he, I think, became world champion or around that time. And he said it's the worst thing he ever did because when he was working as well, it just it just all made a lot more kind of sense to him because that's what he'd always done. Um, and somebody else saying to me recently that exactly what you're just saying that that when you finish, if you've had a job before, then going back to one. Isn't that isn't that hard? But how 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 difficult was it finishing? Because Matt just touched on it there, and it's doesn't matter what level you've been at. It's mm. this is something you've been doing, which very very few people know what that's like to be in there. The pure adrenaline of it. it's probably unlike any other sport. Getting your hand raised must be an incredible oh. an incredible feeling. So how yeah. do you? What's it like when that's over? That's, that's... Well, for me, it, never, it was never really over. I always thought I was going to go back to it, so it just slowly over the years become not boxing again. So it was wasn't a wasn't a gradual. It wasn't a, like you've, that's it. You're finished. You're finished. I just said, yeah, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back. Going to back. I never went back. So just slowly drifted away from it. So, so, so okay in, in your mind, you're still not officially retired. No, no. <laughs> I had a charity fight three years ago. I'll have another one soon. I think with me, it was when I had my kids. When they were, you know, I thought I got to that stage where I remember my last fight, I remember going, getting called up for the, like my last fight and um, I didn't really want to fight I had that in me, like, it was like oh, I don't want to fight today, don't feel like it, but I went for, and I came out after I sat there, I remember sitting in the change room thinking can't do this anymore got to look after my kids today, because maybe one fight I might not come out because I was getting older and I'm thinking... And the kids are getting... They all get... As you say, they're all, like, concentrating, not going to work. That's their life, the boxing. You know what I mean? And I just thought, that's enough. I remember going in the gym. I think I think hit the bad twice. And I said to Nobby, that's it, enough, done. And he went, no, you can't leave. <laughs> I went, I'm finished now. I'm not doing it anymore. And that was it then. Called it a day. I think... With me, it's, um, 
I was, I was stopped from boxing. The British Boxing Board wouldn't let me uh, fight again. But they kind of done me a favour, I think, because when do you stop? You know, you always have that, that hunger mm-hmm. and that... that um, you see, you see someone in the ring and you're twitching and you're, you're moving your head just like you're in the ring yourself, you know. And, um, but I, uh, I always... I always said when I was younger, I'll, I'll, I'll be finished by the time I'm 30, 33, something like that. But I went on to us 36. I had my last fight when I was 36. So I f- really do feel they've done me a favour by um, not letting me carry on. I had an injury, and what had happened, um, I was supposed to, I, spar- I fought uh, some African guy, beat him, and then uh, I'd done my shoulder. But then they phoned me um, for Amir Khan, and uh, I was gutted, absolutely gutted. <clears throat> and uh, but it was only giving me a w- no, no, sorry, it was giving me a week's notice. But then um, I, t- I said no, I'm not going to do it. And then I had that fight after, sorry. Then I done my shoulder, and then they phoned me again and gave me five weeks' notice this time. And then I was like, mm, yeah, I'd like to do, but I've got a bad shoulder. Cause I really thought uh, I could beat him. If you know Khan, you know if you catch him, yeah. you know yeah, he's got a chance. Yeah, he got a chance very him. fast. Yeah, got a punch chance. That's right. And um, <clears throat> after that, I never got the uh, the chance to fight again. Yeah, I mean, what was that fight when I think was it was it when Robert fought Eastman when you boxed out Alfred Cote and your boots were slipping? That's right. Yeah, was that, that yeah, fight. That's right. That was the. I was in the corner, weren't I? With uh, oh, no, Dan Hudson. No, it wasn't that fight. It was a Hatton fight. It was a Hatton fight. That was. Hatton was um, on the. I was on the card of Hatton then. Was it? Yeah. It was that. No. It was that Wembley Conference Centre, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Because I remember I was giving Dan a hand in the corner, yeah. and your boots were slipping. But I remember seeing that. But you know what they done to me. In that, yeah. You know what they done to me in that that fight. Um, a lot of people don't really know. I trained for the fight. I was fit. It was all good. And then on the the day before, they said you're not fighting now. So I'm like. All right, then, yeah, you know what it's like. I'd starved myself for, like, so many weeks. I went, I just said, put loads of food, drink in my belly. I put seven pounds on. And then I got the call a couple of hours later after I ate and everything. This is your fighting now. So I had to go back in the gym and take seven pounds off. So when I went, when I had the fight... As soon as I stepped in the ring and I threw my first punch, I just thought, there's nothing there. I just knew it. <clears throat> you were slipping as well. Do you remember That's the right, boots? Yeah, I was. Oh, yeah, the boots. I think I had to run back to the change room. Get, my, get your trainers. trainers yeah, yeah. Come to the ring with them. And then between the round, me and Dan were pulling your boots off. I'm doing it. You couldn't put them on. you got two gloves on. you got a minute to do this. It was mad. Remember them on the telly? was saying it and everything. Yeah. I was about it. 18 yeah. or whatever it was then. Yeah. Fucking mad. <laughs> But when you look back on it all now, there's, there are so many, there are so many strange things that can happen in, in, in boxing amateur or or professional, and you're, you're still kind of seeing them every week, really taking fighters yeah. up and down the country. I mean, what? God, there'll probably be quite a few. But but when you when you look back at it all, what are the moments that kind of stand out for you? Whether they're personal, whether they're kind of highs, lows, whether they're pure comedy gold. Just not love to see my lads getting a win, especially away. I had a lad called Ben Fields. I took him on the road and he won seven fights. Obviously, you're going to interview him in a few weeks. He had seven fights, seven wins over seven weekends over different 
all unbeaten lads away from home. That's that's the, the thing you like them kind of things there. Or just coming away safe and not getting not getting hurt. I've done six six rounds. They get a mark on the face and they've been paid. That's that's nice. Just just on that is is that something? To what extent do you worry about getting hurt in the boxing ring? Is is it uh, you can't think about it too much, or you'd never go in there? You, don't, yeah, you, don't, you, don't, you don't think, think about, about it. You don't about think about it at all. Just nah. get on with it. You mm. don't think about it at all. You just think I'm just want to go in there and beat the guy. Your eye can be cut it's and big. split, and you, you, the ref's going, I'm going to call it. No, I'm fine, I'm fine. I still want to fight, you don't care. But not, not even as you get a bit older, not even when you find yourselves in situations where you've had to take a load of weight off late on, and you know that that's, you know, that's a no. little bit of a dangerous thing to do. I think you, d- you do. When you know you've got to lose weight, you, it's always there in the back of your mind. You know, I think, oh, God, how am I going to, am I going to do these rounds? I'm, you know, I'm going to get tired eventually, and especially if you're going to fight a guy that's probably up there, you know what I mean? You, you know, you're going to, nothing's going to be, you're going to have nothing left halfway through the fight. You know what I mean? So in your head, you're going to think, I'm going to get hurt tonight. But you just go in there and defend yourself but at all times, aren't you? I used to think, um, I always thought I'd, I could get hurt, but you never thought, I'd never think, oh, I'm going to get killed tonight, or, you know, or nothing like that. I never thought nothing like that would ever happen. But it's only when I, I started, um, I noticed I was getting older. Uh, the punches were coming towards me. I could see them, but I couldn't move. Um, uh, and I'll have a fight, and I, I, I'd think, well, I could have done better than that. I could have beat this guy, but I ended up getting beat by someone that um, really I, I, felt, I felt like I could have beat. Yeah, I, I felt definitely t- towards the end, the last few fights, um, while well, Brian Rose got his really, that probably wouldn't even have... Well, I probably wouldn't have asked them to spar me and they probably wouldn't have come, you know, a couple of years earlier. And, yeah, I'm having hard fights with them. And, and in my head after, I think, well, that was because of this or that was because of that. Make and I have a reason why it didn't happen, making excuses. Yeah. But then I remember sitting there thinking about it, trying to think of what, what options are coming up. And then I just remember thinking, regardless of anything... I haven't really performed for about three or four years. Well, probably probably the last good performance was Alcine before Golovkin. But it, that was a first-round knockout. If I hadn't got him in the first round, who knows what way it might have gone. And, you know, Martinez was, 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 was a loss, but it was a good performance. But I think for me, definitely after that fight, um, the love had gone. It definitely had gone. And I think um, after that, I was boxing really because I was at a position where now I was a big name and I was still in the top sort of four or five in the world that could get good money for the fight, where it had never, ever been about the money for me. Obviously, you wanted as much as you could get, but it was, it was, that was probably the third or fourth thing down the line. Yeah, that's right. Where at that point, after, say, Martinez, it was probably the first thing on the, on yeah, the thing, really. Right. Where, and when you start thinking like yeah, that, it's, it's time to get out. It, it, it's, it's, it's too hard, boxing, to do for me. It's yeah. the excitement and the passion and the buzz. That makes you get up at five in the morning. That's You're it, not yeah. getting home till eight o'clock at night. There's yeah. not. The, the, there's probably not enough money that, that you could be paid to, get, to keep yeah, doing so that and right, to go in the yeah. ring and getting. But it's only the passion, and the love that drives you through that. But or, for, for me, definitely at the end, I thought, listen, I, I I wasn't exactly a kind of hit and not get hit kind of guy. I had a lot of hard fights, and I remember thinking towards the end, the passion, the love had gone. I thought I'm really hanging in there because I might get another shot and blah blah. blah. Or maybe because I didn't want to face the fact that. You've done. I've done this for 15 years, and then it's like, right, I'm only 33. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? You know, that's because that's quite a scary thing to to face as well. And but and I did start thinking then, 
you know what, mate? You, you've had a lot of hard fights. You know, you've had a lot of bad, bad eye damage around your eyes. My, my right eye is a lazy eye anyway. If I, if I close my left eye, I can barely see who you are. I can tell that you're there, but my sight's <laughs> not good in my right eye. And, and that's just a birth that thing. That must have happened on a night sound. It's then as well. <laughs> that doesn't happen to me anymore. No drinking five years. I'm starting to get some brain cells back. <laughs> you never did, did you really? Yeah, no, no. So, so in terms of in terms of the the Ben surname, what I, what I'm curious about is, by the time you were born, your dad's career was pretty much finished, like mid to late nineties. He was he was pretty much done. So, at what point, when you were growing up, did you find out or realise, if you like, in, in sporting terms, who he was? And, and what he'd done, because we all knew, but we're older than you, so it was obvious to us. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. That's a hard one because I lived in Spain. I went to a Christian school. I was raised around church. Um, and that was my life. Um, Nigel Ben wasn't ever a, a massive, a massive big deal um, in the house. It was never spoken about. He sold his two world title belts to a charity. Um, but my dad kept kind of coming back to England doing Q and A appearances and stuff like that. And I think maybe when I was fifteen. Um, I realised I come. Uh, it was a Ricky Hatton fight that I went to my first ever boxing match, and uh, Ricky Hatton's last fight. Yeah, my, and then they said Nigel Ben's in the in the building, and then like the whole crowd just like just went mad, and it was it was like it was surreal because my dad was just my dad to me. Like he got on my nerves every day. Do you know what I mean? He was just my dad. Like, he used to tell me off and I used to lie. You know, he used to have an argument. And then when I got there, I was like, yeah, you're more than just my dad. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're, you're a public figure. You're an icon. Do you know what I mean? So many people look up to you. And the way um, I felt that day was just un- unbelievable. You, you only get feelings like that very rarely in your life. And that feeling I got there of a sense of pride in my dad was, um, is like my superhero. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so you, that was two thousand and. 12, is that the fight against Senchenko, Hatton's comeback at the Manchester Arena? How old would I have been? Say again? I was born in 96, so how old would I have been then? 15, 16. Is that right? Yeah, so about around that age was when I was like, okay, Dad, something you, you lot ain't telling me. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's, that's interesting because that's quite, that's quite late, really. So was it, how soon did boxing start after that for you or had it already started by then? Or was that, the point at which you thought that you wanted to do it? Yeah, so I went on a, what's that, ringside boxing with Johnny Nelson and Adam. What's what's that called? Is it ringside boxing? It used to be ringside, yeah. 
that's it, ringside. Yeah, so I went on that. It was literally about, I was about young then, 15, 16, about a couple months before that, I started my, I laced up my first pair of gloves. So you took it up, you took it up in relative terms fairly, fairly late in that case. Um, and so the, the journey from there to turning professional at 19 is a fairly, is a fairly rapid one. I mean, Matt, what are your, when you look at fighters like Connor, like like Chris Eubank Jr., uh, and there have been others, or, or, you know, the sons or daughters of any famous athletes, if they decide that pro sport's for them and if they're good enough, do you look at the weight that the surname carries and think, yeah, I'd have, I'd have fancied that? Or do you look at it and think, actually, that could be more trouble than it's worth? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's 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 a bit of both. I mean, the, the, I suppose in terms of my personal sort of um, experience around something like that, which was a little bit different because it weren't father son, but Ricky Hatton and Matthew Hatton, you know, that Ricky Hatton was a huge name. Uh, Matthew was a really good fighter, but he never really got the credit he deserved because, you know, Ricky was the bigger name and the cheaper and was, you know, the better fighter. But Matthew was still a very good fighter. Now, so... You could say, some people could see it as a negative because you could say, oh, he's always in his brother's shadow, this, that, and the other. But then you could also, other, the other side of it is, well, you know, he probably got opportunities and he got sluts on cards that maybe he wouldn't have got for, you know, the way he was performing, the ability where he was at. He was getting opportunities that fighters that were probably better at the time weren't getting. So, you know, he, it was it was a positive and a negative. You know, he, I think it gave him, it afforded him the time to develop you know, because he wasn't being under pressure, he wasn't being uh, thrown in there, he was kind of protected and looked after and allowed to develop at his own pace. But actually, if you look back on Matthew Hatton's career, he had he had a fantastic career. You know, we made 12 rounds with, with Sal Alvarez, he was uh, with Canelo, you know what I mean? Back, and he, I think he gave weight away as well. He, I don't think he never stopped. Uh, he was European champion. He, you know, he ended up having, a, I think, 50-odd pro fights. He had a fantastic career, very underrated fire. I spied many rounds. With Matthew Hatton, I can tell you he was underrated, definitely. Um, so I, I remember, you know, he's he's fighting at the same time when his brother's getting all these rave reviews, and you know he's not, and he in he can tell that some people are thinking, ah, oh, he's only there because of his brother. Well, yeah, he's getting opportunities because of his brother, but he's still going to win the ring and fight. Now that's obviously different to father son because you know they were fighting at the same time together. Kind of, you know, like he said, he didn't even really know that much about his father's career growing up and it kind of dawned on him and he'd only just started boxing about 15, 16. So, I mean, personal experience, I, I don't, the father-son thing, what would I, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what way, <laughs> I don't know what I'd think about it really. I think, like I said, I think it's a bit of both. I think you get opportunities, you uh, you get spotlight, you get attention that you wouldn't get, but with that comes more scrutiny, more criticism, more comparisons, more pressure. So, it's a bit of both, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that, that's absolutely fair and, and, and right it's, it's a double-edged sword so so we've kind of dealt with that with the with the the surname and the, and the pressure that that brings um so now let's just get into it because as I said there are things that make you different uh, and that was one and the 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 relatively late start was another and, and the brief amateur career was another but then once it all starts all of a sudden Despite the surname, despite signing with Matchroom, despite picking up that sponsorship with Reebok, all of a sudden you're just the same as everybody else now. 
because you've got to live that life and you and you've chosen it and you've got to get on with it and you've got to go to the gym and like you say and do the sled and do the triangle which for those who don't know is an evil sounding 1100 meter run that they do in a triangle around the match room gym uh three sides to it as you'd expect <laughs> because it's called a triangle but the first one which i believe is maybe the longest one is uphill and quite severely uphill i've seen the start of it and you've got to do it in five minutes uh, or under and then you get a minute's rest or you get a minute's rest starting from when the first person to finish finishes and they do like six or seven of them just depending on the severity of that hill, I reckon I might be able to do one. Anyway, what? enough, <laughs> enough, <laughs> enough of that. Enough of that. Um, but yeah, serious point. No, when it all starts, all of a sudden, you find yourself in Ilford, which okay, that's where where your dad's from, but it's not really where you're from, um, and you're by yourself, and you've got this journey ahead of you. And people probably think, oh, Connor Ben, he'd have a driver and he'd have a concierge and he'd have a chef and he'd have this and he'd have that. But but that wasn't that wasn't the case. So what what was life like? So first off, quickly just before I get to this part, I um I come to England not planning on um I planned on boxing, but I was gonna stay amateur for like three years to go to the Olympics, you know, do all the amateur things properly. Um, and that was when I was staying down um, Ricky Atten's gym. And I lived, I moved straight from Australia to Manchester, which, which was definitely, considering I lived in Spain and Australia for most of my life, it was a shock to reality. Um, so I knew my family not being there as well. It was, uh, it was one of them things where it was like, okay, where do I go from here? And my, I didn't have a job at the time, obviously. I'd just come in. My dad was giving me £50 a week. I remember I had no money um, and I had to call dad to ask him if he'd let me go, if he could transfer me £10 for, for a Chinese meal. And it was to that extent, my dad wanted me to show some accountability. I remember I had to call him up and, um, on occasions of times um, to go get some food and if he could transfer me some money. And then while I was training at Hattons, um, my dad was like, oh yeah, you're going to have to look for a job. And I was so I was like, yeah, that's fair enough. I was only been in England now for about five months. You know, yeah, try and find a job. I was trying to look for a job as well. I've got my certificate free for my master's degree in fitness. So I was going to try and do some sort sort of training in Hatton's gym. And then I come down to Matchroom Gym. Um, got invited down there. My dad knows Tony, my trainer, from way back. And I got invited down there. But during this time, I hadn't fought for a year. I had one year fighting as an amateur. And then the rest was training. So I had, I think, 22 fights in one year. Um, or 23 as an amateur, didn't and then box for a year when I come to England, went down the matchroom gym, sparred um, somebody and and sparred exceptionally well. Um, and then last next thing, Tony was like, yeah, we'll turn you pro. Um, and then having that talk with my dad, I had to get Kevin Mitchell to beg my dad to let me turn pro. And, and then, yeah, I... That, you know, you can turn pro. I was like, brilliant. We're all, we've all agreed all rounds. And I used to get up then, before my first fight, I used to get up and walk from Ilford Station, walk from Henley Road. Do you know where Henley Road is? Yeah, yeah. Ilford's just down the road from where I live. So yeah, I do. So Henley Road to Ilford Station, I used to walk, uh, used to get up at five in the morning, leave by 5.30. You got to remember, this is a massive shock to me. I had no one on my case telling me to do this. And this is why I think Tony signed me. 
because I used to get up at five in the morning, walk to the train station, it's still pitch black dark, whether it was in summer or in winter. I can assure you in winter, it was horrific. Um, and I used to catch the train to the gym, do my training, then sleep at the gym, and then do my second session, then train it back. And all of this was done before I'd even seen any sort of money. Do you know what I mean? I weren't, it weren't like, oh yeah, bomb is a massive signing on fee, or bomb is my dad's giving, no, it's still on £50 a week. So, and, and I've, sometimes I forget that. Do you know what I mean? Because it was, and that, that showed my, I, I didn't have to get up. I didn't have to get up and train in the morning. So for those who want to slate me, yeah, so many ki kids who have rich parents, kids out there who are spoiled, who do nothing with their, 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 their opportunities. I've chosen to take my opportunity, despite all the criticism and stick I may get, because some people wouldn't, wouldn't do that. They don't know how to do that. You know, is it wrong to be ambitious? Is it wrong to want to achieve something or wrong to want to reach my full potential? For some reason in this day and age, it seems to be the wrong thing to do. Don't chase your dreams or you're going to get loads of hate from people who... who and and I, I never knew people were going to be like that. I didn't expect it. What, what have I done wrong to make you guys feel like this? What have I, what have I done personally wrong? You know, and, and that was something I really had to learn on the spot. Because it's safe to say, yeah, I grew up in a bubble. I did grow up in a bubble. I sometimes dabbled in and out of the bubble because I was that kid. But I was probably raised in a bubble. I weren't raised to be hard. I weren't raised to be, um, I, you know, the Christian lifestyle. And that's how I was raised. So me coming in, it was a massive shock to the to everything. My whole life had changed. Do I, would I change it for anything? No. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. It does sound though like your like your old man was he was almost doing his best to put you off it or to make it as hard as it could be. And 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 Chris 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 Eubank Jr., he like senior, did the same thing, basically. He said, All right, if you want a box, then go over to Vegas by yourself to professional gyms and spa and see how you like that. But I guess in a way, like it is so hard this life that you choose to, to lead you fighters, that that is the only way. You, you, you it's tough love, isn't it? That's, that's exactly what it is. And my dad my dad from young raised me firm their appreciation of money, level of respect. I remember I missed weight as an amateur once. I was like two pound over on like as an amateur. And my dad went off of me. Like he went, you're so embarrassing. How dare you embarrass me? And I thought, oh, all right then, mate. Like, <laughs> I'm just doing this for fun and games. They weren't nothing, nothing deep. But, and he was, he was very firm with my dad. But little did I know, it was harsh love. And little did I know that he was preparing me for a day like today. And... Because my dad was just, he was, he was a very firm man. He was like, my dad was like, he was like military. Do you know what I mean? With everything I'd done. And 
and, and that, that clearly is, you know, happened for a reason. We'll move this on now uh, to a different discussion and this is one I've been looking forward to for a while. It's something I've been wanting to get into for a while and we've touched on it on occasions um, but it's time for a, for a deep dive and Dave was always earmarked for this because I think he's kind of the perfect person to, to talk to about it for a number of reasons and, I, and I'll explain why once I've introduced the, the topic and, and the topic is the idea, the concept of natural talent in, in sports and whether it even really exists, and if it does, to what extent it exists. Because people talk about it a lot. Talent and talented is something you hear an awful lot. I've just been watching the cricket downstairs on, on Sky, and they were talking about the same kind of thing. And the amount of times that the, the word was used in the context of the discussion was, was huge. Uh, and certainly when I was playing sport as a kid in the youth in the 80s and 90s, it, it was it was it was everywhere. Basically, it was a means of explaining, basically, simply put, why some people are so much better than others, um, and it is a it, it's quite a a convenient way to to explain it for, for athletes at times because you know how do you explain why somebody is is so much better at something seemingly than you are? So people really bought into it this idea that that it was an actual thing, and they talk about it being in the DNA, in the bones, genetic, all this kind of stuff. But over the last few years, a different school of thought has has kind of emerged, and 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 it's always been around, but it's been given a bit more of a voice. Matthew Sides written a couple of books about it, which I've which I've read, and their theory is that it's more down to conditions. It's not about some kind of mythical, magical thing in your bones. It's about your environment and what you're exposed to from a young age. So I'll give you an example just to just to try and make this as accessible right from the beginning as I can. Let's say you've got two parents who are both professional athletes. They have a child uh, and that child goes on to be a professional athlete. Now, when I was, was, was playing sport, like I say, as, as, as a kid, the school of thought there, that would have been very easy to explain, that the kid went on to be a pro because the two parents were pros and it was in his or hers blood. You know, as long as they had the enthusiasm for it, then they were going to make it because they were preordained to make it. They had this massive head start that nobody else that nobody else had. It was just in their wiring that they would be naturally good at this. Now, the counter argument to that from the conditions lobby, if you like, is it's not that. There's no, there's no secret gene here or anything like that what that's about is the fact that that kid is born into a professional environment a professional sporting environment have got amazing role models to learn from and observe at close quarters and sport is all around them from the very second that they're born it's in their kitchen in their nutrition it's in them being encouraged to exercise their parents' friends will be athletes, they'll have great equipment, they'll know all the right coaches, all of these things. So if you've got the motivation for it, that's why, if you're born into that environment, that's why you will succeed. It's not some kind of magical element. So hopefully I've set it up now and um, credit to you for not nodding off there during what was quite a, a lengthy explanation. So anyway, Mac- Macklin was, was an elite level performer, so obvious why he's, he's he's well qualified to talk about this but Dave particularly so because he was a fighter and he was in a gym where 
there was a range of fighters, but but you had one say in in, in Prince Nassim Hamed who would be described without exception as outrageously talented. And look at look at what he did. And people would say that was down to his talent. But there was another one in there as well, Johnny Nelson, who insists that he had no talent whatsoever and that he got all the way there through hard work. So that's one thing. Uh, obviously, he trains fighters uh, at different stages of their careers too, which is important. Some of them right from the beginning, some of them when they're more established. Um, and a lot of people know this, but not everybody. He's also dad to uh, a son in Theo who's showing some real ability, potentially. Everything's potential at his age as a as a footballer. So he's kind of around this whole debate, if you like, all the time. Um, so let's just dive straight in. Dave, I'm kind of asking you to explain the, the, the meaning of life in sporting terms here, really. But, but do you believe in natural talent? Does it exist? And if it does, to what extent does it? Right. I'm not saying I'm right. When I when when somebody says to me, I can describe it better with my kid, right? Because I understand exactly what he has to do to look like what he does when he's playing football, right? And people say, he's a natural. He's naturally talented. No, he's not. He's not at all. Because he works his socks off to become what he is. He has two weeks off. I said to him, I, you know, he had his birthday and a, and a week. I said to him, have, a, have your week off your birthday. You had a week off after that. Don't do anything. He just, just, just had no football. Didn't kick a football for two weeks. Came back, gone absolutely right down back to square, almost square one. Honestly, couldn't, he couldn't, his touch were, were off. His shooting were off. Everything were off. He worked so hard at it. And so when somebody says the same of a fighter, Somebody says, oh, he's natural. Is this? You're discrediting the work ethic that they have to have to get to that level. You know, fighters have to work so hard. You can have this talent. You can walk in and you can pick things up quicker than somebody else. Now, I believe that there are some people that, and it might, it might be down to genetics, um, some people physically where they're, they're, they're gifted in the fact that the, the way that the muscles are, the way that the, the, the fibres are, the nerve any they'll respond to things better than others. So say, for instance, somebody who's got a fast twitch will respond to that sort of action better than somebody that's not. Now, that is that is your physical makeup. So that's going to give you uh, a leg up on certain elements there. But if the guy who's got the fast twitch and he, he can do this naturally, doesn't condition himself to, to be able to do it after round, after round, after round, after round, the guy who's not got that, can still beat him, still can still out, so, um, outdo him in his career, you know, just because you have got talent. It's like, so Johnny, Johnny didn't, I was there for years, you know, I was there when Johnny was, I think, in his first reign as British champion as a cruiserweight. And I used to get told off of Brendan all the time what Johnny was like, you know, and I see the difference of Johnny back then to how, how I, I watched him, how hard he worked. He worked harder than anybody in that gym. And I've seen so many fighters come and go from that gym. Nobody outworked him. Somebody else, John Paxton, nobody outworked these people, right? Then you'd have Naz, who would come into the gym. He could have two months off after a fight, come in. You'd watch him on day one, and you think, it looks like he's, not, he's, he's, he's never been out of the gym. But then he couldn't sustain it for day two, day three, day four, because his body were absolutely shattered from the efforts they put into it. But what people don't see, or don't talk about, is the work that Naz and Brendan put in from six years old, seven years old, all the way through 
that made it repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. So it became, so it looked like it was natural because that's just how it is. When, when you learn to walk, you have to be taught that at the beginning. You're not, natu- you're not a natural walker when you're born. You, you, it's something you develop. If, you're, if you never get up and start crawling, if, if you never start trying to climb up onto your feet, if you never do this process that there is, you'll never just walk normally like somebody else. You have to go through stages. And I think that, that by saying that somebody's naturally talented when they're successful, it's discrediting all the hard work that gets there. Like, yes, some people pick things up quicker. I can teach two fighters the exact same thing. Twins, Jamie, Jamie and Gav McDonald. I couldn't teach them, I couldn't train them the both way, both the same way because physically, mechanically, Gav's a little bit more mechanical and, and built in a different way to what Jamie is. Jamie's more smooth. But in picking things up as well, on a pure boxing sense, Jamie would pick up the, the sharpness and, the, and the, uh, the speed sort of things quicker than what, what Gavin would, but the twins. So, so some people can pick things up differently to other people and some people adapt differently to other people. And so depending on what field it is, they will have that, maybe perhaps a little bit of an advantage so then they can absorb things quicker and it doesn't take as long, whereas others do. So Matt, you were... 100% described as naturally talented when you were a young fighter because you you hit the kind of uh, you hit the, hit the heights early you boxed for England uh, you won senior ABA title at 18 years old turned pro young all of that people listening will be will be aware of the back backstory so that ad- adjective would would have been applied to you Macklin is a naturally talented fighter so what what I want to know is it's it's kind of it's a two part question this really when you were coming through was there a point at which you realised, um, I'd imagine there was, so at what point did you realise, actually, you know what, I'm a lot better at this than the other lads my age in the gym? Uh, and the second part to the question is, when you realised that, did you stop to kind of ponder why that was? What was it about you that made you better than them? No, so, I mean, as a junior, I won my first, as a schoolboy, I won my first four fights when I went into the gym and the first night I hit the bag and that the coach there said God you, you know he says that he, he looks like he's a talented kid he, you know he, he already is shaping up pretty good he has ne- he's never been in the gym before so I'd, I'd played a lot of sport up until that point you know football I'd played uh, rugby at school cricket Gaelic football hurling you know hurling was something that at, you know the age of that's probably the first sport I ever played and you know, that, I was playing that over here in England. It's an Irish sport. And when I was going back to Ireland, I was as good, you know, even not better than the people now. Now, that was something I played and practised up against the wall every single night for hours. So there's there was was I naturally talented? Yeah, I picked things up quickly. I had good hand-to-eye coordinate, hand-eye-ball, foot coordination, physically, athletic, uh, mentally determined, get stuck in that. So all those ingredients... But there was definitely um, an obsessive, an obsession within me, whatever I was doing, that I would repeat, 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 practice, 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 like completely. So I, I think there's, I don't think either side of this argument is absolute. I think, because yeah. I, and, and other people that I've been involved with and played with and seen them, you know, they pick things up quickly. They're, they're, they've got a good eye, you know, they've got good, you know, they, they just 
catch a ball, they can pick up a hurley stick or kick a football. They've just got that good hand-to-eye ball coordination. And, and they're blessed with speed or, or, or strength or explosive, like they said about talking about the fast twitches. And those things are going to help you in sport. But if you don't apply that, most, yeah. most, most people that have made it in sport have been obsessive about it. They have practiced longer and harder than anyone else. And that's why they, because otherwise it's just potential. You know, if you don't yeah. put the work in, it's only potential. You, you can be blessed with gifts, like, like I say, the, the coordination, the good eye, the phys- you know, physical, um, you know, athleticism. But if you don't put the work in, it's only that potential will never be realised. Like Dave yeah. said there, Asim Hamed. Yeah, Naz was obviously blessed with, with things. He was gifted. He had those reflexes. He had, he had the coordination. He had outstanding power. But Naz, you see the video footage when he was eight, nine years old. He was in that gym morning, noon and night. Yeah. And when he wasn't yeah. in that gym, I guarantee you, he was thinking about it. And I was, yeah. I was definitely like that. Whatever sport, at different stages, other sports were more important. Obviously, got late teens. Boxing became more important. But... I was very much, I was that person that used to read the cover to cover, you know, the magazine, read it. I knew who everyone was. I'd be in the gym early. I'd be the last one to leave. First in, last out. Um, you know, and I, and I think mo- most people that end up making it, they're j- I, I, maybe not maybe not at the end of the careers or maybe not midway through it, but certainly on the rise on the way up, 90% of those people will have been the first in the gym and the last ones out. Hundred percent, I I agree with that. Hundred percent, and and like e- even with myself, I know I didn't do anything as a, as a fighter, but there was nobody in my and you touched on it about your environment and parents and things like that. There was nobody in my family that was athletic. My dad was a big man; he was about eighteen stone, nineteen stone. Couldn't even run to go if to have a kick about. He just kicked the ball as far as he could, and and I would run like a dog playing fetch. I would run and go and get the ball. That was that was his idea of taking me for a kick about. I didn't have anybody around me that, that was athletic, that was sport, nobody interested in sport, watching sport, anything. I took that on myself to start. And I remember the first time we ever went to a weights gym was with school. And I was, I think I was 14 years old. And it was the most embarrassing experience of my life because I was seriously the weakest out of everybody. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. We went to this bodybuilding gym, all these different tiny little dumbbells, barbells. I couldn't do anything. I was the weakest one out of everybody. I changed that by because I worked hard. I worked hard in the gym. You know, when I, when I started boxing at 15, I worked so hard at that. I worked so hard and, and carried on in my life. I worked so hard. And, and I read somewhere that your genetics can change can, can, and adapt when you do things a certain length of time. So, because I was always worried about my genetics passing on to my my if I had kids, how that would be. Because I was like literally just a, a proper skinny little weed, and and with no strength or nothing. But you know, I look at I look at my little boy. He's been born into an environment where there's boxing on TV, there's football on TV. You know, I'm I'm get up in the morning, and I'll do my press ups. So as he's got older, he started getting up in the morning doing his press up. He started picking things up. You know, he doesn't box. He's not a boxer. But when he comes into the gym and he's watching, you know, every so often he comes in and watches the lads train. So then when he started putting his gloves on and just doing a couple of rounds on the bags, I don't coach him at all. Don't coach him at all. On lockdown, we did a couple of little bit of pads, but I don't coach him. He can punch. He can, he can, you look at him on a bag, you think, 
you know what? He could, and the lads in the in the gym, because they know that I'm terrified of him wanting to box. They laugh about the fact that he could actually box if he wanted to, you know, and and uh, that terrifies me. But he's been brought into a, you know, healthier eating sort of environment. So he looks in good shape. Like I said, he looks after his body. His football, he works so hard at it. And and I just think that sometimes your environment, my, my environment, I didn't have that. We ate terrible as, you know, when I was a kid, we ate terrible as a family. Nothing healthy, nothing like that. It was only only once I started, I moved away and I started living on my own that I started changing that. And then my body changed. I become healthier. Um, so it doesn't matter what environment you're in. If you can change that environment, if it's not suitable towards being an athlete or suitable to to being successful, you can change that yourself and you can you can change that path. But somebody who's been doing it longer, it's repetitive. At the end of the day, if you're practicing something a thousand times and I practice it 10,000 times, odds are I'm going to be better. You know, regardless of your natural talent, but your natural physical capabilities will give you an advantage. You know, if I'm not a banger and I get into a punch up with you and you can bang, you might not be technically as good. You might, you might not throw as many punches as me, but if you beat me to that shot and hit me with that shot, then you can, you can knock me out. Whereas if I can't punch then odds are, you know, you're not going to get hurt off of me. You know, certain people have different advantages over others, but this still takes the work. This still takes the, the, the discipline and the dedication to get to maximize the potential. Like you said, Picking up on what Dave said there, Andy, because he's uh, he just, uh, I was thinking of it as he was talking. Now, I haven't read that book by Matthew Side, but I've, I've heard about it and I know, I know what, what the gist of it. Now, from primary school, to, to me, there were two good friends of mine and they were both very sporty as well, both good at football, good at all sports, fast, everything. Now, when I look at them and we look at myself, they, I would say they were as talented in, in, in their sports, but because I think one of the things that Matthew's side talks about is motivation and yeah. drive, basically, you know. And I, that, they may well have been as talented as me, maybe more. I don't know in different different sports, whatever. But there's no when they didn't have anywhere close to the, the the desire, you know, that that motivation. Like, I mean, I was sleeping, eating, breathing, dreaming. In, you know, not dreaming at night. Every, Every man dreams in their sleep. I'm dreaming through the day. Do you know what I mean? Constantly. And I think that that was probably the difference. But but there is, I, I mean, you know, Conor McGregor, I remember Conor McGregor had that kind of famous quote, didn't he, where he said, you know, there's no talent here. There's no talent here whatsoever. This is just an obsession. Now, I don't believe that's totally true. Because like you say, some people pick things up quicker. Some people are easier to coach. Now, but me and those those two lads that went to school, they were talented. They were like three of us could pick things up quickly. We were athletic, all those things. But the one that probably separated me from them was that drive. It was that. You, and then you talked about the, the 10,000 hours as opposed to, say, 1,000 hours. But I, again, I haven't read the book, but I think he talks about when you compound that. So you've got Floyd May with a junior, for example. Now you see Floyd May with a junior and you see his old man and you can see there is a massive obsession going on there. But yeah. not only is it an obsession of Floyd Mayweather they're putting in the hours, he's putting in the hours with his dad, who's someone that fought Sugar Ray Leonard and was a top fighter and knows the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. So when he's spending an hour with his coach, that's better than me spending an hour just hitting a bag in the gym on my own. You know, he's, he's spending an hour with his dad, someone that's showing him 
the correct way to do it. So he's repeating correctly. He's doing it the right way for an hour and then the next hour and the next hour and the next hour. Yeah. You put 10,000 hours of that. You're compounding it because you're, yeah. he's doing it in the right way. It's getting better and better and better where if I'm just practicing in a gym on my own or with a coach who isn't that good, you know, my level, my uh, rates of improvement are going to be slower. But if you're yeah. there with someone that's, you're doing, te- you, you've got that obsession of 10,000 10, hours going on with someone that knows how to do it properly, then you're compounding it. I, th- I think that's, that's spot on that, spot on that is. And, but also as well, what you touched on there, talk about motivation, that's the mentality side of things, right? What, what I tend to find is that when you hear these people that are ultra successful, your Ronaldo's, your Kobe Bryant's, your people like that, your Michael Jordan's, your people like that, right? Their mentality is a different level to even normal champions, right? They take things extra. And what I find is with, with, with kids, especially children these days, right? And I'm not knocking, but it is how it is, right? We are taking away this competitive side, this winning side. I don't know if any of you have, have been to parent, uh, to um, uh, sports day at school. You can't win. It's about just taking part and having, having fun. And There's nobody winning races anymore So because they don't want to offend the kids that don't win. If you don't breed that winner's mentality from a young age, they will always be at, be behind the ones that are wanting to win, right? You've got to understand that you can't win all the time, yeah. You've got to understand how to take a loss, yeah. But in order to reach the absolute pinnacle of the sport, you have to be a winner there. And you have to be willing to do whatever it takes there. You have to push yourself there. Because if you don't push yourself there... You can't push yourself here to where it needs to be. Were you, once you started, were you bitten by the bug and you were in then and you knew that you were a lifer? Or did you think that at the start were you undecided? Did you think, well, I'll just see how this goes and if, and if it goes well and I make some money, then great. I didn't even think about it, Andy. I just did it. Um, I don't think about things like that. I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm going to retire at this age or I was going to do this. I got involved in it purely by accident. And it was for un, what they called unlicensed boxing. It was legal. It was not not what um, Harris portrayed it was in some of the films you see, like Lock, Stocks and all those things. But I was involved in that. I was only young myself. I was about 23, 24. And I was, um, my relation, Lenny McLean, that's how I got involved it through him, but I, it, 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 I just got involved in it and, it, and at that time, all it, I got involved because somebody else had Roy Shaw. I was a young kid. These guys, they were, you know, a couple of these guys were sort of well known as such, and it was just become. It was, you know, I'm up for this. You know, whatever we got to do, let's get on with it and do it. So we did that. Then the next, then I was asked, invited to take a, a license out by the Boxing Board of Control a couple of years later, which is what I, I did. And obviously, boxing was controlled by the then cartel. Beat that BBC television wrapped up. As I mentioned earlier, there was no ITV domestic fights. They had the venues, there was the, all the big venues, they had, had exclusives on them. And it was just a matter of, you know, wanting to break it down getting in there, breaking that, you know, breaking down that thing so that, you know, for me, it would work for me. It worked for the guys that, who, who I was 
the fighters I was with. So it was a challenge and I, you know, and I, I enjoyed it and I still do. I just got on with it. No, no long-term plan, nothing at all. Just get on with it and do it and just keep, keep working hard. Um, I could, you know, putting your house up for collateral, to, for money, for fights, doing all things like that. That's what you do. If you believe in what you're doing, you do it. And, um, you know, I suppose I am a bit of a gambler. I, I used to bet a lot when I was younger, so I was quite a gambler. And, uh, but I knew, I, I knew that I knew that I was as good as anybody else who was in there doing it. And over the years, like anybody, you get knowledge the longer you're in it. And I, and I, and I had good people around me, like Ernie Fossey was my matchmaker, very experienced, very experienced. He was a former fighter, great cornerman, probably the best cutsman ever been in this country. People like him, you know, working around him, listening to him, watching him. I worked boxers' corners. You look at the early fights, I was in the corner. I, I worked the corner with my fighters. You know, all those youngsters that I signed, I worked in the corner with them. Joe Bugner's second. So it's not like I've just sat on the outside of the ropes looking in. I've worked with the fighters. I was at the gym every day. But obviously, you know, just, put, you know, involved in it all, involved in the training aspects and everything. But as... Time went on. Obviously, the promotion side of it takes takes your life over, and you and you got you can only do so much. So I spent, you know, obviously then started spending more and more time on the uh, promotion side of the business. But I've, you know, I've been there, done it, seen it. You know, I've had uh, relations who've been boxers. Um, so, you know, and I've always been a sports nut. I've always enjoyed my boxing. Always enjoyed uh, enjoy all sports. It's an absolutely key period, and 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 I was going to ask you at the start actually, but uh, it seemed it seemed like a bit of an abrupt way in. Who has been the more formidable opponent, COVID nineteen or the cartel? But the situation with the cartel was a really fascinating one because it's completely different to now. There are lots of different platforms now, and you're just trying to get yourself the best partner you can. Whereas then, there was just the BBC showing boxing, and, Mick, and Mickey Duff had it. Um, hence the cartel. I mean, how how did you? That must have seemed like an almost impossible task to start with. I'd have thought. Well, I was on my own, and what there was there was Mickey Duff, Jarvis Stair, Terry Lawless, who, who was the manager, and Mike Barrett. Mike Barrett had the exclusive on Royal Albert Hall. Jarvis Stair was chairman of Wembley, so they had Wembley. Wembley. They were the two big stadiums, and they had York Hall. You couldn't get in York Hall either. So it was, it was very difficult. And I, I, I sort of, I went up promoting at, the, at Bloomsbury Crest Hotel. I could get 1,300 people in there. It was a ballroom. That's where I, that's where I was doing my, you know, starting my shows. I had to start, that was my York Hall, if you know what I mean. So I was doing it. And I, and I thought, two to now to get ITV on board. And my very first fight was on BBC. Clint McKenzie against Steve Early. And that was like a nightmare. I won the purse bid. I had bid Duff and Co. and won the purse bid for the fight and got it on. The BBC didn't want to take it, but they, they, they BBC, as you know, are a public corporation. You know, they're, they're funded by license, license, uh, TV license fees. So I made a big stink about that. Um, and eventually, we got the, I got it on there. But they, I mean, it, it was, it was a nightmare. Not on live, they showed, the fight went on a Friday night and they showed the highlights on Grandstand, as it was in those days. Before all your times, Grandstand, they showed uh, the highlights of the show. 
And then I was trying to get ITV in. I got involved with Joe Bugner. I signed some really good amateurs up and brought Bugner back and I got ITV on board. And it was regional to start with. It was Thames Television. Bob Burrows was there at the time he was the boss. I got met him. We got on very well and he, and he got behind it. And then all the other regions over a period of, of you know, a very short period, they all then got on board. And then we, I had the whole of ITV. I think one year on ITV I did, I think it was about 39 shows. I was doing fights on their midweek sports fights on a Wednesday night. I was doing a show called Fight Night, which I think was on Mondays, which was in the central area, area TV. There's no central, um, Granada and uh, Yorkshire, I think Scotland. Another series called Seconds Out, which was Thames Television, uh, Southern TV and a couple others. I can't remember what they were there. And then I was doing shows on Saturday night, which went out on London Weekend, ITV. And we even did some on World of Sport in the afternoon. We did a couple of afternoon shows. So I was really, really busy. And it had been tough, but that was that was just unbelievable. The pressure, pressure, pressure. But we really worked hard. And we delivered. I mean, we delivered you know, some cracking shows cracking fights and built some fighters up and, and and most importantly for boxers there was an alternative it wasn't a one shop you know one place to go you one stop shop you could you know they they could talk to me or talk to the other side but at least they could that there was some competition there so box nation always really fascinated me i did quite a lot of work for, for box nation and re- really enjoyed it because you just had free reign to, to to basically do whatever whatever you wanted but at that point there was Sky showing boxing, and really, and really nobody else. So, I mean, that, that that seems kind of unthinkable now, but it's not that long ago, and 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 that was the scenario. Uh, your your relationship with Sky came to an end, and so you started and founded and set up your own television channel. Which is just when you think about it, that is that's as bold as it as it gets. But the Box Nation years, I mean, you must have a you must have a lot of affection for them. Well, I have, but I mean, but I did that as well back in the day. I built an arena. I built London Arena, a 12,500-seat arena, because we couldn't get an arena. So we built an arena in Docklands, which was, you know, that was in the uh, late 80s. But Box Nation came about because Sky at the time, Barney Francis was there at the time. And Barney, for me, I found it to be hard work. And there was, I think, Matram had eight... He was, what he was about to do, he was about to say... Matram could have eight dates, Ricky Hatton could have eight dates, Frank Maloney could have eight dates, and I could have eight dates. And he wanted to pay 100 grand a show. That's £800,000 per annum for eight shows, and you're supposed to be running a business, paying boxes, and it just didn't work. So I told him that I was going to start my own channel. And cut a long story short, um, he didn't. They, they just sort of looked at me and thought, oh, you know, that ain't going to happen. I knew it would happen. We worked very hard. The pro- we had problems from day one. There was a Russian guy involved who was going to put up a substantial amount of the capital. We put a lot of money in ourselves, and he was putting his money in. And, and I remember, I, I still got the text. He sent me a text said, saying money had been wired, which I'm still waiting for. I think it's like eight, nine years later. It never, ever arrived. And it was a big blow to us, a big blow, because... Now we're scrambling around and we've got to make up this, this big hole, this big financial hole. But we got out running and we did our, I think the first 
we had a really good fight on it. Your call, the first fight, it was a cracking fight. Um, you, know, you couldn't have launched it any better. It's probably like one of the small hall fights of the year. And then, uh, then Tony, I did uh, Bellu and Cleverly. Cleverly. We put that on there. We put that, and for no subscription, we put it out free to air. We've done about four or five shows free to air. So we just put our money up. So we're down the money from uh, the Russian. Um, and it was, you know, it was tough. And then a friend of mine got involved, Bill Ives. He passed away now from Random Still. He became involved in it with me. And and, uh, and my sons were involved. And we, we just got on with it. Everybody said it at last about three months. And it's still there nine years. I think it's nine years now. It's, it's there now. And and it was difficult. The problem I had, I, you know, because it's like a baby to us, was that, I, you know, we did a deal with BT. And, well, we'll just jump back. BT at the time got suddenly got, in, got into sport. And I think Barney felt that they were going to come, you know, that I was going to do a deal with them. And whereas he was, he was I, think, I think they were gradually getting out of boxing. And I'd left nine, nine months before my contract had ended. I said, I'm off. And what he'd done, as you know, it's history, he got rid of Ricky. He got rid of uh, Frank Maloney. And, um, and I'd gone anyway. So Matram went up with a deal. Income BT. And they, they then got behind boxing games. They thought BT were going to get straight into, and make boxing one of their sports. You know, at that time, um, Sky had, you know, the premiership, so they had it all to themselves. So they didn't want to let anything go. They didn't want to let, and they certainly didn't want to see um, BT building any portfolio up. BT didn't get into boxing straight away. It took us a while before we'd done anything. And luckily, I think for Matchroom was that Barney decided that they were going to reinvest in the sport. Remember, they had a couple of crappy pay-per-views that they brought um, Audley Harrison in the uh, Eddie Hearn brought Audley Harrison back. He had the fight with David Hay. It was a crap fight and it bombed. They had all sorts of problems on the thing and they, they then stopped doing pay-per-views. So all things, you know, at the time, you know, things happened for a reason. At the time, that's where it was. And then uh, BT got back into it and I've done a deal with them and they were going to let our shows be simultaneously shown to on Box Nation and BT. And then uh, it was about... 18 months later, they said, no, we want it exclusive. So I had to make a choice. Am I going to stay with Box Nation or am I going to go with BT? And I had to go with BT because otherwise, at that stage, we, you know, we need to move our fighters onto, onto, a, onto a bigger platform. So that's what we did. Right, you're talking there about you know, running the shows free to air. You didn't even charge subscriptions. I'm guessing that during that period, you never worked harder in your life. You lost money show after show, but you were trying to get from A to B. You were trying to get it to a place. Now, comparing to today's market, when we talk about the zone, you've got Black Nick, he's coming, he's thinking, I'm going to have a punt here, I'm going to buy boxing, I'm going to get this. And he's you know, throwing hundreds of millions at it. At what point is he going to start thinking, listen, where, where does he need... I mean, you'll know better than me. I'm just, I'm guessing that he must have a target that he wants to get it to, then he sells it to Google, or, or, or maybe he's, he's producing enough. I mean, what's his end game to which you think? 
Well, I think his end game was to build it up and is to build it up and sell it. It's, you know, it's successful in Germany, but Germany's a different CV market. They've got you know the Bundesliga and a couple other sports there. I think they do fairly well in Scandinavia and Japan. America was all, all was all boxing, and I think he got carried away with um, Anthony Joshua. He went to the fight at Wembley, and they thought they could do that in the states. Where is he? Where, where does he? He's he's past that point of where he's done his money. He knows he's done. He ain't getting that money back anytime soon. Problem is, how are you going to get an investor in? At the moment, you've got um, Alvarez suing him for two hundred and eighty million. That's like you know, it's a quarter of a billion suing. So you've got that case going on. No one's going to be investing while that's there. And they got and the subscription base is down. And they're not. He's not a fool. He's a sense. You know, he's a genius businessman. He done. You know, he, he just sold. Uh, Warner Music, or you know, sold it and still owns it, and still owns eighty percent of it, or whether it's. I mean, he's a genius, the man. He's a very clever man, and I'm sure he's clever enough. He's and he's, he's certainly clever enough to. He's not putting any more money in, and he's clever enough to know that um, that he overpaid, and there's there's overpaying and there's overpaying, but he's really overpaid. And let me say, the zone is no different than Box Nation. So exactly the same business. Yeah, that's I suppose that's what I was getting at, Frank. At what yeah. point does he think I'm throwing good money after bad money? We've just got to cut my losses, or does he keep going? Well, it's does he keep going? I think he looks at the other territories and looks at the other territories and thinks to himself, you know, that they are viable. They stand up. The the boxing in America on its own won't stand up because they haven't got a star. They got one star, Alvarez. He fights twice a year. You know, that's two weeks of the year. That's not going to sustain the subscription channel. No one's knocking down. You, you know, you look at the Matchroom shows out, out there. No, they haven't delivered any massive subscription base for those shows at all. They just haven't. That's a fact. That's not, I'm not criticised. I'm just saying it hasn't happened. Does he need a deal with the NFL or the NBA? Has he got to cross over? But, but they're not going to go, they're not going to do that. Why? How are you going to take, I don't think they would do it now because all, you know, Remember, they 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 Major League Baseball. They dropped that. There was, they got a dispute going on with them. I don't know if that's going legal. They've got UEFA. There's a problem with UEFA. I know there's a big supplier that they got number. So at the moment, no, I don't see American. Look, it's not just about going for the money. You want your sports to have some profile, and those sports depend heavily on sponsorship as well. So those sponsors going to these own are not going to get. You know they're not going to be seen, so that that models that unless they came in and had a big, you know, a, a major sport in the states to and put boxing on with it would have been okay. Or if they'd have t- paid a market rate for boxing, it probably would still be okay. But they've overpaid ridiculous sums of money, ridiculous sums of money. It's great, great for who's ever gotten the money, but it's crazy money. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, now that you know they're. You know, they're sitting there and they saying, "Where, you know, where, where what are we going to do this? Where do we go with it?" You know, he's, I mean, he's, I'm hearing definitely he's not putting any more money in. Then maybe he might put some more in, but if he does, he's just throwing good money after bad. Something fresh, Suki Tatwe, Jenny Dival, Lassie Lanyard.
Network.